Let me pray for us once more. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word to be read to us, to be able to hear from you. Lord, we don't take that lightly. We want to be serious about the word of God. And so we ask now that your spirit come into our hearts to make them soft and moldable, teachable, willing to submit to your word. As we have been reading and studying through the Sermon on the Mount, we don't want to come away unchanged. We don't want to come away with just knowledge. Lord, we want our lives to reflect what you have been teaching us. And so, Lord, do this for your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. I think the worst form of deception is self-deception. No one likes being deceived. You know, it hurts to be lied to, whether it's coming from a friend or a spouse, a child. But at least in those situations, you have an opportunity to confront that deception, to get at the truth. But if you end up deceiving yourself and others around you are equally equally convinced, then, friends, you are really in trouble because you can't confront deception that you don't know about. And so you might end up being stuck in a self-constructed web of lies, never really knowing the truth about yourself. And I bring up that reality of self-deception because Jesus does the same thing in today's passage. It's how he concludes the Sermon on the Mount. He ends with a warning. And so as we finish up our sermon series on the sermon, we'll finish with a similar warning. A warning to all who claim to be citizens of the kingdom, who profess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King. And I don't think there is a more frightening passage than ours today. Throughout my years of ministry, I, I uh, have had uh, more than a few people come to me for counseling, utterly disturbed by this very passage. They wonder to themselves, is there a chance that I could go all my life calling Jesus my Lord and yet, and yet be rejected by him in the end? Is it a possibility that I've been building up my life on sinking sand and not even know it? This is a frightening passage. I realize those questions, they may sound strange. They may sound foreign to you. They may even sound inappropriate because Christians are rarely challenged in this way. In the church today, we, I think we are way too quick to offer assurance of salvation to anyone who just says the right words. So, so long as you answer the diagnostic questions correctly, as long as you pray the sinner's prayer, then we immediately assure you that you are in the kingdom of heaven. We tell you you're now a Christian, and then we leave you to it. Any notion that you may have deceived yourself when you said Jesus is Lord is quickly brushed aside as an unhealthy form of doubt. Don't, don't ask that. Don't worry about that. Just, just, just go on with your life because you said the right words, you made the right prayer, you're saved. But if you, if you never ask, if you never ask, am I truly saved? 
If you never open the self-examination, then I, I wonder how, how do you take seriously Jesus' warning found here in our passage? How do you obey the, 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 the number of, of biblical commands to examine yourself? We're commanded in Scripture to examine ourselves. So, for example, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, it says this, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. Examine yourselves. Test yourselves. These are biblical commands. Socrates famously, famously said that the unexamined life is not worth living. Well, I think Jesus would say the unexamined life is not wise living. It's foolish, according to the parable he tells us here. Because you could go on living in self-delusion, thinking that you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, but after you die, standing before the judgment seat of Christ, standing before the king of heaven, you hear him say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Can you think of anything worse than that? Is there anything worse than to stand before the king and have him say those words to you? That is a horrifying thought. And that's why, that's why Jesus' warning here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is really grace to us. It's, it's going to be hard to hear. It might hurt a bit as you hear these words, but it's worth it if it leads to a self-revelation, if it means we now have a clearer picture of who we are and where we stand in relation to the kingdom of God. So this is, this is grace, even though it's going to be hard to hear. So what I want to do uh, this morning is to show you, to show you three things in our text. You can follow along with me uh, with the outline that's in your bulletin. First, we're going to be looking at the necessity of obedience. Second, the warning of self-deception. And third, the discipline of self-examination. So let's begin with the necessity of obedience. Uh, in most translations, verses 21 to 23 is going to be separated uh, from verses 24 to 27. You usually have these um, little titles in between. And so they're often read separately and they're taught separately from each other. But there is a common thread. And the common thread between these two sections is doing. Doing the will of the Father in verse 21 or doing the words of Jesus in verse 24. In both sections, a failure to obey is the main problem here. In the first, the first section, you can sum it up as saying without obeying. A person says all the right things about God but fails to obey God. And in the second, the problem is similar but slightly different. It's about hearing without doing. Where you hear the words of Jesus taught to you, you're constantly, weekly, maybe even daily, hearing Jesus' words, but you don't do anything about them. Both sections are stressing the necessity of obedience. 
Now let's start in verse 21, and the problem of saying without obeying. And let me read it again. I'll read verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now that word there for Lord, kurios, it could be used as just a polite way of addressing someone, like calling him sir. But the next verse mentions on that day, which is most likely to mean judgment day. And so given that context, we're talking about final judgment. The person saying, Lord, Lord, to Jesus is not just saying, sir, sir, but Lord God, Lord God. And so we're talking here, friends, about a person who has an orthodox biblical view of Jesus. This person recognizes that Jesus is more than just a man. He is more than just an exalted teacher. He is divine. He is one with the Father. That, my friends, that belief is essential to the Christian faith. If, if you do not, and if you cannot confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, as in Lord God Almighty, then you are not saved. Calling Jesus Lord is necessary for your salvation. But in itself, it's not sufficient. That's the point being made in our passage. You say you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You say you believe he's the second person of the Trinity. He's the Lord. He's the Savior. But your profession of faith means very little if that profession is not validated by the way you live your life. That's the point. You know, in Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount, he records Jesus saying a very similar thing. In his account, in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus is recorded as saying, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? It's, it's clearly laid out there that his concern is we're not doing what he says. To call Jesus Lord is to affirm Jesus as master. And masters in biblical times had absolute authority over their servants. There was no negotiation between master and servant. Master says, servant does. And so if you don't actually do what Jesus tells you, then you really have to wonder, in what sense is he really my master? It would seem that Perhaps you're still your own master. You're still your own Lord. If you're not doing what he says, if you're only picking and choosing what you want to do from what he says. So the problem here is when you say one thing about God, but you do the exact opposite. Later on in Matthew chapter 21, verse 28, actually just turn there with me, just flip a few pages over to chapter 21, Look at verse 28, and there's a parable here that Jesus tells about two sons. And let me just read to you um, from 28 to 31. He says, what do you think? A man, <clears throat> excuse me, a man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he said, and he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. 
Which of the two did the will of the Father? And the answer is, it's the first. Yes, the first son initially said the wrong things. He was disobedient, but it says in the text that he changed his mind. He repented, which in Greek literally means to change your mind. And so he ended up working in the vineyard. He ended up fulfilling his father's will. Now contrast him with the second son. The second son who said all the right things, he said he's going to go, but he doesn't go. He doesn't obey. So the point here is that what you say means nothing if you don't obey. Now, go back to our passage, and if you keep on reading in verses 22 to 23, Jesus says, not only is what you say about me not enough, but what you do for me in my name is not enough if you do not obey. Look at verse 22. Jesus says, on judgment day, many will say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. That's a scary, scary thought. That means I could be preaching powerful sermons in his name, I could be opposing evil spirits in his name. I could be performing mighty miracles in his name. And if I did those things, no doubt all of you would be impressed. But there's a chance God won't. There's a chance he might actually say, I never knew you. Depart from me. And so in the final analysis, the fruitfulness of my life will demonstrate the truthfulness of my words and deeds. And that's really the same principle that we saw in last week's passage, is it not? That the health of a tree's fruit validates any claim of that tree to be healthy. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Verse 20. So our, our, our problem our problem here is that we, we have this tendency to equate good fruit with fruitful ministry, as if good fruit is just referring to a fruitful ministry. But really, the good fruit that Jesus has in mind, the, the kind that's going to reveal who you really are, is not the outward manifestations and results of our ministry, the good fruit is our daily obedience to God's will that flows out of a good heart, a redeemed and regenerate heart. And so what that means is that saying all the right things about Jesus and saying all the ways you've served in his name amounts to very little if, again, you're still living in disobedience. So let that sink in. Are there areas of your life, particularly the private life, particularly those hidden areas, are there areas that are not aligned to God's will? Are you in disobedience in any way to God's word? If so, if so, do not take any comfort in having right theology. Do not take any comfort in having lots of ministry experience under your belt. 
That's what verses 21 to 23 are saying to us. Now, in verses 24 to 27, the problem is a little different. It's hearing without doing. And so look at verse 26. Verse 26, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. It's like what James says in his letter in James chapter 1. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So you're deceiving yourself if you store up all of these words of Jesus in your head, but if they never translate to your heart. Or to your hands. You're fooling yourself. You can listen to sermons every week. You can read the Bible every morning. You can listen to Christian podcasts every day. But if all of that biblical knowledge doesn't translate into biblical living, then you are deceiving yourself. You are not who you think you are. Now, before we move on, friends, let's be clear here. I want to be crystal clear. That Jesus is not teaching salvation by works, and neither are we. We are saying obedience is necessary to be a Christian, but not as the cause for why you're a Christian. It's like saying good fruit is necessary to be a good tree, not because the good fruit is what makes the tree good, Think about that. That that makes no sense. The good fruit doesn't make the tree good. No, a tree is only good because its creator made it so. And if it's a good tree, well, then it will, by necessity, produce good fruit. And so in the same way, what makes you a Christian, hear this, what makes you a Christian is not your obedience to God. What makes you a Christian is God. God's sovereign grace in making you new. And now, now that you are a new creation in Christ, you will, by necessity, produce an overall life of obedience. Your life will be in the direction of obedience. Now, no one is saying it's going to be a life of perfect obedience, but in the final analysis, come judgment day, a true Christian identity will be revealed by his or her fruit. His life, her life, will have the taste of Christian obedience, the taste of the fruit of obedience. That's why I, I, I just can't understand why some Christians ignore the necessity of obedience. You know, there might be a man who, 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 who dies and, and leaves behind a legacy of worldly indulgence and sinful disobedience, but just because, just because he prayed a sinner's prayer when he was a child, just because he confessed with his mouth that Jesus is Lord, people are going to say, well, hey, at least he died saved. They'll say he died an immature Christian, but it makes no sense to me. I, I understand. I understand not every orange on an orange tree is going to taste equally sweet. Not every orange is, may even be sweet. Some might even be sour, but at least there's still oranges growing on an orange tree. 
If a tree produced a bunch of lemons, and that's all they produce, you wouldn't conclude in the final analysis that, oh, I guess that was just an immature orange tree. No, it was always a lemon tree. And maybe it just took to the very end to find out. The only way, the only way that tree is ever going to produce oranges is if it dies and gets reborn, gets recreated all together into a brand new kind of tree, a new creation that you call an orange tree. And so friends, that's how you become a Christian. That's how you get saved. You have to die to yourself, and you're born again by the grace of God and by the power of his spirit. He makes you into a new creation. So so don't take comfort and don't give people comfort based on simply what you said or what you did in the past. Instead, base your assurance on this very simple question. Am I obeying Christ in the present? Ask yourself that. Have your friend ask himself or herself that question. Am I obeying Christ in the present? What I said in the past, what I did in the past, means very little if there's no obedience in the present. You're better off asking these questions now, friends, no matter how painful the answer might be, than than to continue on in a state of self-deception. That leads to our second point here. I want to continue to warn you about the reality of self-deception because according to Jesus, it could be so hard to detect from just outward appearances. That that parable he tells us about two builders building on one of two foundations, I I know it's, it's often treated as a lesson on just how much better it is and how much wiser it is to be a Christian than to be a non-Christian. You know, wouldn't you rather uh, build a, a life on, on the solid rock of Christ? You know, if you build your life on anything else, one day a storm is going to hit, and it's going to wash everything away if you're not a Christian. Now, that's certainly true. That's a very important lesson. But if you read this parable in context, it becomes very clear that Jesus is not contrasting religious people versus non-religious people. It's not like he's pitting in this parable the Christian versus the atheist and whose house is going to stand. No, if we read these two sections together as a whole, if you start actually in verse 21, it's clear that Jesus is telling the parable later in verse 24. He's telling it to people who would equally call Jesus Lord. The second man is the the second man is building his life. On, on sand, the, the second man that is building his life is not just this man who is obviously godless, whose life is obviously worldly. In this case, what Jesus is doing is he is having us picture a pious, devout, religious man who could easily pass for a Christian. These two houses, they probably look identical. They were probably built in the same way. And they were located in the same place. They must have been because they were exposed to the same weather conditions. And so think about this. On a sunny day, 
the casual observer wouldn't know the difference between these two houses since the only real difference between the two lies far beneath the surface, way down deep in their separate foundations. The house that weathers the storm, we're told, is the house whose foundation way down deep is built on the rock. Look in verse 25. Verse 25, And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. But as for the house built on sand, Jesus says, The rain fell, the floods came, the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now, of course, the obvious question here is, what does it mean to build your house? What does it mean to build up your life on the rock? Well, Jesus tells us what it means in verse 24. Look at verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So apparently the rock is the words of Jesus. In this context, it's the whole Sermon on the Mount, everything he taught. Building on the rock means doing or obeying what he taught, doing his words. And the whole point being made here is that we are talking about a deep-seated heart-level obedience that may not be obvious from the outside, may not be obvious to the casual observer. We're talking about a heart obedience. You know, who, who knows how long these two houses stood there side by side before that big storm finally hit. Could have been days, maybe months, maybe even years. When things are going great, no one can tell the difference. It really does take a storm to reveal the truth. In the same way, professing Christians, we all tend to look the same. Our lifestyles, our routines, our practices, they tend to look the same. We're located in the same church. But whether we're genuine or false in our profession of Christ as Lord is often unknown until God puts us through a storm. Now, of course, the storm that Jesus is referring to here is, is the storm of God's just fury and wrath come judgment day. On that day, there will be a great revealing. Later on in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 25, it says the Son of Man will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. That's a sobering thought as well. So let me just stress again, your obedience to Christ, your doing of his will, is not what makes you a sheep. You're, you're a sheep if God, by his grace, through your faith, makes you a sheep. Okay, so your only hope, come judgment day, is not in yourself, but really it's in another sheep. It's in the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Your only hope of surviving the final judgment is the blood of Christ which was shed on his cross to atone for your sins. That's how you're saved. That's what makes you a sheep. But friends, the point of our passage 
is that your heart level obedience to Christ still matters because that's how you are distinguished in the end from a goat. Do you have that heart level obedience to Christ? So let me ask you, what's your foundation? What's your foundation? What's underneath your house? What are you building your life on? Is it solid rock or is it sinking sand? If, if you're going to ask these kind of questions, well then friends, it is best to ask these questions early on. The time for examining is really at the beginning when the foundation of a building is being laid. That's why, that's why I think it's so important that we disciple new believers. If there are people coming to faith in Christ, receiving him as their Lord and Savior, we need to follow up with them immediately. We need to be building into their lives, helping them to lay a solid foundation. This is also why I think we need to invest in children and youth ministries. Because the same principle, when they're young in the faith, when their foundation is still being laid, we've got to help them establish a firm foundation of obedience to God's word. We've got to inoculate them from an easy believism that just focuses on saying the right things about the gospel, making all the right professions, answering all the right questions. Let's be sure to present a gospel to our to our seekers and to our young people, a gospel that puts forth Jesus as more than just the Savior for the future, but a Jesus who is Lord of the present. We need to teach them more about the Lordship of Christ so that Christians, especially new ones and young ones, actually know what it means to call Jesus your Lord. It means you serve only one Master, It means you sworn your complete and full allegiance to him alone. It means he gets to tell you how to live your life. It means Jesus has complete control over you. Now, if that sounds like utter nonsense to you, if it sounds completely foreign to you and to the way you're living your Christian life, well, then there's a good chance that you may knock one day and say, Lord, Lord, and he's not going to recognize you as one of your own, as one of his own. So what kind of foundation has been laid in your Christian life? What about your children? What about those students in your D group? What about those peers in your small group? What kind of foundation has been laid? If you wait too late to examine and to ask these kinds of questions about Jesus' lordship over our lives, then it's going to be much harder to tell once they start building up a construct of, of, a, of a religious life on top of, of, of a foundation that you don't know about. It's not clear, is it really on the rock or not? You may have to wait for a storm to hit before you find out what kind of foundation is underneath the surface. And so that leads to our final point, the discipline of self-examination. If you recognize the dangers and the folly of an unexamined life, then what do you do? 
Well, I, I like what Luke actually says in his version of the same parable. In Luke chapter 6, verses 47 to 48, it says this, Everyone who comes to me, this is Jesus talking, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. And so what sticks out to me in that version is where it says that the man, he dug deep in order to lay the foundation on the rock. I'm sure it was much easier and much faster to build the second house because you could just bypass that long and hard work of, of digging down deep. But the point is, is that that kind of work is worth it. It's worth it to dig deep into the Word of God, to know it deeply, and to honestly examine your life and your obedience in light of it. That's the discipline of self-examination. It's where you regularly are holding up your life and, and, and you're comparing it to God's Word. It's where you're asking yourself if you're living in line with the will of God. You're not taking that for granted. If you call Jesus your Lord, then I wonder, friends, I wonder, how do you respond to God's word? How do you respond, really, just to this Sermon on the Mount? Are you merely astonished at Jesus' teaching? I mean, that's what we read in verses 28 to 29. Look at verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And so what they noticed is that Jesus, unlike the other rabbis, he didn't just quote a whole bunch of old dead rabbis. He grounded his authority not in, in the teaching of other teachers before him, but in himself. Unlike how the scribes preached, unlike their style, Jesus was very comfortable in simply saying, I say to you, not Rabbi so-and-so says to you. And so the crowds, noticing the stylistic differences in his preaching, they were amazed. It astonished them. But really, that reaction is not enough. I hope you go further than that. Don't be like the crowds and just analyze Jesus' preaching style, just admiring his skill and his profundity and his, his beautiful words. Astonishment at Jesus' beautiful teaching is not enough. I think many of us would say we love the Sermon on the Mount. We, we'd say that it's one of our favorite passages in Scripture. We've studied it. We've analyzed it through and through. It amazes us. We are astonished every time we read it. But the real question is not, do I love the Sermon on the Mount, but am I living the Sermon on the Mount? That's the real question in the end. Have I applied my Lord's warnings and instructions to my life. I mean, just through the whole course of listening to the Sermon on the Mount being preached Sunday after Sunday in this church, have any of my routines, any of my habits, any of my practices changed? Have they adjusted at all in accordance to God's Word? If the answer is no, nothing's changed. I've heard it 
studied it, still the same, then I hope and pray that Jesus' warning here in today's passage gives you pause. Don't just give this sermon a passing glance and approval and move on unchanged. Don't even leave this place this morning without probing your heart. Am I actually doing God's word? Or am I merely just hearing it? And if I'm merely just a hearer and not a doer, then what does that reveal about me? What does that say about me? Friends, if you're, if you're regularly examining yourself like that, and, and, and if you're like me, then you're regularly finding out how much you fall short of God's word. And in those moments, yes, you could. There's one option. You could despair over whether or not you're really a Christian. You could go there and just be in a state of despair and depression and fear, worrying if you really are a Christian. You, you could go down that path. Or you could respond like a Christian by repenting, by believing in God's forgiveness through faith in Christ, and then by praying to him for the grace and the strength that you need to obey from this day forth. That's how a man or woman grounded on the solid rock of God's word responds in moments like that when they realize their inadequacies, and their failures. Turn away from yourself and to Christ, your Savior and Lord. Let his oath, his covenant, his blood, let it support you in the whelming flood. So when all around your soul gives way, then he will be your hope and stay. Let's pray. Father, don't give us rest until we ask ourselves these hard questions, until we examine our own hearts. Do not give us peace until we come before you seeking to have our lives be exposed by your truth. And Lord, we pray for the grace, the grace of, of, that is found in the blood of Christ to forgive us of our failures, of our sins, and the grace that we need to obey you as we leave this place. Lord, thank you for these hard words. Thank you for the warning that you've given to us in your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.